Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Kurt Russell's been trending on Twitter after being confirmed as part of the cast for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. He'll be playing Star-Lord's dad. This follows a claim for starring in Quentin Tarantino's Western, The Hateful Eight. But Russell also made another Western last year, Bone Tomahawk. But because that was a small indie film with limited distribution, it received far less attention. And that's a crime, because Bone Tomahawk, which was in my top three films from last year, is a far superior Western to Tarantino's film. It's a perfectly calibrated and meticulously crafted film. I saw Bone Tomahawk at the Abattoir Horror Film Festival in Wales because the film never played in San Diego. But after seeing it on the big screen, I knew I had to get a screening of it here in San Diego so my fellow film geeks could enjoy it on the big screen. It starts simply enough when a woman doctor tending a prisoner is taken captive. You know who did this? There's only one group that hunts with these. Who? They don't have a name. What kind of tribe doesn't have a name? One that doesn't have a language. Cave dwellers. You know where they are? I have a general idea. You'll take us to them? I won't. Because you're an Indian? Because I don't want to get killed. You're afraid of your own kind? They're not my kind. They're a spoiled bloodline of inbred animals that rape and eat their own mothers. Well, what are they? Chagodites. What do they look like? A man like you would not distinguish them from Indians even though there's something else entirely. Why would they tear that stable boy up, leave him, but take the others away? They don't eat Negroes. Do they think they're poisonous? Chicory. He'll show us where they're at. You'll be killed if you enter their territory. That wasn't the question. Show us where they're at. We won't be dissuaded. The cast includes Kurt Russell as the sheriff, Richard Jenkins as his backup deputy, Lily Simmons as the doctor, Patrick Wilson as her husband, and Matthew Fox as a kind of gentleman gunslinger. I had a chance to interview writer-director S. Craig Zaylor about this amazing feature film debut. But before I start the interview, let me play another brief scene. This is an exchange between Richard Jenkins and Matthew Fox, and it shows that despite the horrific turn the story takes at the end, it's also full of rich character humor. You watch how you speak to the law. Sheriff especially. You aren't captain. No. I'm the most intelligent man here, and I intend to keep us alive. Oh, you're the most intelligent man here. Is that a fact? It is. Sheriff Hunt has a wife. So does Mr. O'Dwyer. And you're a widower. Yeah. What has that got to do with anything? Smart men don't get married. Well, that's because no woman wants you. First of all, I just wanted to tell you that I traveled all the way to Wales to the Abattoir Film Festival to see your movie. A, a pretty well-named festival at, at, at yes. that. Yes, <laughs> it's a wonderful little festival. It's not real big, but they pick really great films. And I have friends who live in Wales, so I've had a chance to go there uh, a couple of times. But I got to see your film there, and it just floored me. It was great. And then I worked very hard to get a screening here in San Diego because it never played here on the big screen. It did play in two places, I believe, in Kansas City. So, <laughs> well, I, I won't go into all of the details uh, regarding that, but the, the theatrical release was, was certainly not a priority. And for this kind of movie, I, I don't know how, how often that is the case. But yeah, I, I would like to have seen it 
better pushed in its theatrical release and also just better distributed. I'm from Miami. It didn't play there. It didn't play in Chicago, but, but it did. I think it did play in two places in Kansas City and maybe maybe a couple in Ohio. So that had more to do with deals than, than an actual strategy. But again, the, the theatrical was a, a bigger concern for me and, and the producer, Dallas Sonier, than, than it was for the people who were actually putting the movie out there. Because it does play so much better on a big screen with an audience. Yeah, it, it does play well with an audience. I've seen it in, in a bunch of different places, uh, London and, and Spain and Texas and Los Angeles. And, and recently, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, which is a, a particularly enjoyable experience for me and had the expected walkouts that I anticipated knowing the crowd there as, as a person who lives in New York and has gone to MoMA for a lot of years. But uh, yeah, the, the last Thursday night, the, the shock which is something I'm probably appreciating more as I've seen the movie uh, you know, a million times and, and lived with it. So I, I'm, I'm really aware of what's going on with the audience. But it, it's nice in that way, but also really just the spaces. I mean, when one of the reasons that I made a Western and that I enjoy Westerns are they're adventure pieces, and they, they take you in a different place and put you in a different space, and you're put in that different space in a very different way if you're sitting in a dark room and it's enormous all around you rather than if it's on your television or, or on a computer. And certainly I've cringed when I've heard people talking about the movie that they watched on their Kindle. I just I, I try not to just hit my head against the wall when I hear something like that. But better that people see it and enjoy it in whatever way they they choose than not. But there was definitely no intention or, or thought in my mind ever of people watching it on something the size of a of an iPad. As, as my compositions tend to go for for wider and even wider than that uh, throughout, uh, you know, in 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 a world where people are watching it on tiny things and and given a lot of uh, material where it's loaded with close-ups, this is definitely going to be a different experience in that regard on on that sort of format, where really, like, you're, if you're watching people and the majority of the time you're seeing them is in medium shots and wides, that is different if you're watching it on your iPad or on a laptop than if you're watching it on a big screen. Well, and the other thing, too, is that the tension doesn't play the same if you're sitting someplace where you can get up, pause it, walk away. Oh, absolutely. It just doesn't seem fair. Yep. But I wanted to ask, I didn't see any other features listed to your credit. So how do you come out of the gate with a film like Bone Tomahawk with stars like Kurt Russell and Patrick Wilson and Richard Jenkins and Matthew Fox? The cast got that script, and that's the, that's the simple answer to that question. And I've written a lot at this point in, in my career probably – if, if you're including, you know, television pilots and things like that, probably about 45 screenplays and, and eight novels. So I have a lot of material out there. And at the point that I wrote Bone Tomahawk, I'd had about 20 pieces optioned or sold in Hollywood and not seen a single one of them made there. So that's pretty frustrating. I mean, it, it's nice that I can actually make a living, but I feel like I'm making a living sort of as a theoretical screenwriter because it's it's I'm, I'm actually just a screenplay writer uh, when they're not turning into movies. And I went to school and studied cinematography and directing and, and animation in particular and had, had worked as a cinematographer and had that experience and was pretty comfortable that I could take something forward. 
and I was going to do a low-budget horror movie at the time. But when I talked to Dallas Sonier, who is the who's my manager and friend and the, the producer of this movie, and in the incarnation we made it, the guy who financed half of the movie out of pocket. Uh, when I spoke to him and, and my agent Julian Twan at, at UTA, they said instead of me doing a low-budget horror thing, could I do another western? And I'd already written four at that time, two novels, and and that that were getting published. One one had been published, and two scripts had both been uh, sold or optioned, and and one optioned repeatedly uh, before it was sold. So it was something I was very comfortable with and wanted to do, and I thought played better to my strengths than strike horror. And so I wrote Bone Tomahawk, and we got Kurt Russell pretty early on. Like he was, uh, we went to him very early on. At that point, Peter Sarsgaard was cast in the role of Arthur O'Dwyer, and he was the first person on. And he's known for not liking stuff. And then when he liked it, it was seen as a stamp of approval, and his representatives are Kurt Russell's representatives. And so when I had the Peter Sarsgaard stamp of approval, because he tends not to like most things. It went to Kurt Russell pretty quickly, and then he and I had a conversation, and uh, he came on board. And uh, we got Richard Jenkins shortly uh, afterwards, and, and they were on this thing for a couple of years, really, before it happened. But it was the material, and they all responded to it and said a lot of really nice complimentary things, and that, that's what got them all on board. It certainly... Uh, wasn't the payday, though at this point the movie's doing really, really, really well for the kind of release that it is. And so, so these people are all actually getting a good payday now. But nobody knew whether that would be the case then. And certainly uh, you're not necessarily reading a screenplay like that and thinking, wow, this is going to be, you know, the monster hit or, you know, really have any idea what, what can be pulled off for a small budget and then how it would be received. But they they just liked the material and wanted to do it, and that was the bottom line with, with pretty much everybody in this cast because no one was getting paid well, and a lot of these people were just getting scale. So you don't see many horror westerns. I can only think of a couple off the top of my head, like the Sam Raimi one and Ravenous. So what attracted you to putting those two things together, and, and why did you think that would work well? It's interesting because I, I, and I know that a lot of people, maybe even the majority of people who've seen it would classify it as a horror Western, but I've, I've never seen it that way. I just see it as a Western. And most of my writing has dark stuff in it. And when, I, when, the stuff, when it gets dark, it goes very dark. And some of this is because of my writing process, which is I want to surprise myself. And I'm trying to elicit emotional reactions from myself. And I'm the, the, you know, obviously the first person I have in mind when I'm, when I'm creating something, because that's what drives me. So I grew up with Fangoria and and have always been interested in, in horror movies and that sort of stuff. So if you're going to get dark, be it in a Western or a crime piece, and I've written a lot more Westerns and crime pieces than I have straight horror pieces, I wanted to get into territory that is uncomfortable. And if there is violence, I don't want it to just be somebody is shot in the head and falls over and or, you know, someone is, is stabbed in the chest and chips over on a table. I, I want it to be things that are distinct to the pieces that I'm doing. In, in short, I want them to be more creative than what I typically see. So that's sort of where it comes from. And in terms of the, the mythology of the, the troglodytes in Bone Tomahawk, it really came from, and, and the violence that's in the movie, it really came from me figuring out what I wanted them to do, what made sense to me, 
and what makes sense in this situation. But it wasn't really that I was gearing up for this to be a genre hybrid. That said, many people, if not most people, look at it as a horror Western. I just look at it as a Western that gets weirder at certain points and where I've replaced what, you know, in the 1950s would have just been in the Native Americans with my own fictional tribe. So there's that that element, which is, you know, that preternatural element, which is going to make it feel different. But it, it wasn't really that conscious effort. Like all of my whole, all of my Westerns get this dark and have been classified by people as brutal Westerns or dark Westerns or horror Westerns. Uh, and my crime pieces do as well. They, they go into this terrain. So it's just like when I deal with the violence, I want it to be memorable and not something you've seen before and uh, original to the, to the piece that I'm creating. Well, it certainly was. <laughs> this one, I mean, you could feel the whole audience when, when it, because it's going along and on this nice, steady, kind of slow burn. And when it ramps up, it's like you're, maybe not ramp up, maybe it's like being dropped off the edge of a cliff is what it feels like. It's like, whoa, you like lose your breath and everything. Yeah, I mean, that's nice to hear, and those are the expectations and uh, or uh, rather the desired effects. I mean, I'm not giving people a lot of warning with this stuff, and if you ask people who's going to survive this piece and what's going to happen, no one's really going to know. Like, they might know one element of this person survives or this person doesn't, but the and, – and, and the reason I say that is because I don't know. When I start writing these things, I can tell you there's a point in writing this piece where every character who survived did not survive, and every character who, who did not survive did survive in my mind as I was going towards those spots. So as I'm trying to surprise myself daily, which is my writing process, and what I'm doing right now is I'm working on a new piece, it's unpredictable in, in that way. And uh, I'm, I'm sure somebody predicted something or someone had some idea somewhere. But in general, it's that process of, I'm pushing things up and, and sort of ambushing myself and not really giving a lot of hints or a lot of lead up. And then there's obviously very little music in this movie. And that also is in, it, it's intentional and also just an aesthetic choice that I, I knew I would make even before I knew what this movie would be. I just wanted people to experience what was there. And I didn't want a lot of uh, emotional coaching from a score like, oh, all of this stuff is going to be scary. Let's drop in the scary music. This stuff is sad. Let's give you the sad music. If the sad stuff in this movie doesn't work for an audience member, I don't want to underline that fact and make it worse by a bunch of sad music. And I think that the the moments, in, in particular, you know, Bruder, Bruder has a couple in 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 the picture, and and there are certainly some at the end. Like those those either work for you or, or they or they don't. And but but I feel the music would make it worse uh, if they didn't. And there's, there's a just, you know, I just have a comfort with the material. And this, this comes from me being a writer first and foremost and believing that people have these emotional experiences when they read these words on the page and there wasn't sad music telling them stuff was sad and there wasn't horror music telling them the stuff was scary. And there are, there's a small amount of that stuff in there, but very little. And I just wanted people to see it and, and not know where it was going and, and have their own genuine uh, reactions to it. Well, I think that's one of the things that makes it so good and makes it 
so adult because there I feel like there's a lot of people who want to be told how to feel and they get very uncomfortable when the filmmaker's not telling them like this is the good guy or this is the bad guy or you're supposed to yep. be scared here and it's so refreshing to have a film like this yeah well I'll, most of the stuff that I do it, 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 Bone Tomahawk you get to see to some extent definitely my you know other scripts of mine in, in my books I get into all of these you know zones where there are moments, and I, I don't want to say, I suppose, anything that's spoiler unless we're definitely going into that territory in this conversation, but uh, people's opinions on Bruder will, will be divided, and always were, you know, with reading it. Certainly, some choices that are made at the, at the very end of the movie are things that would lead to conversations of, you know, what would I do in that situation? And so those kind of conversations, as well as you know, I'm comfortable really not explaining a lot about the chocolate. I like I could, and I did to the actors so that they would know what they were working with, and and I could go in great detail about a lot of where they come from and why they are exactly the way they are. But I don't want to because I would rather that people think about those things and wonder about those things. And I think in leaving some ambiguity, uh, you make the movie live in a more present way in the minds of the viewers you know, long after the movie experience is there. Like if I just went through and said, this is this, this is this, this happened because of this, some of the things that aren't really clear in the movie or, or you know, that are purposely ambiguous, uh, I think it lives a little less. And having, you know, having some of that ambiguity and, and, and again, not really coaching people on stuff and just letting stuff unfold is it, different. I, I, you know, I wish more movies... Uh, were were like that, and I could I can think of like a recent example. I I enjoyed the movie uh, Bridge of Spies uh, quite a bit. I think there's a lot of terrific writing there, but there's one there's one scene where the the spy has a monologue about being the stand up man, and he's talking to to Tom Hanks, and it's beautifully written, it's beautifully photographed, it's extremely well acted. And then there is this gigantic sad music going on the entire time that I, the entire time I'm watching, I'm like, wow, this really didn't need to be here. The words, the performance, the photography, everything is there. And to me, that music, which is very loud and very heavy handed, kind of hurt that scene. I think because of this, they stopped the beating, they let him live. Stoiki music. I remember them saying it. Stoiki music. It sort of means like a standing man. Standing man. And so this is obviously, you know, a master craftsman at work, but that's the kind of thing where I just wish he trusted the words on the page and the performers and the mood with the lighting and everything that was there, because if you take out that music, that scene is excellent, and with that music, that scene is being spoon-fed to me. So it's, it's, it's interesting like that, the, the, the level of comfort people do or don't have with a lot of that stuff. Like I would say, contrarily, I just saw a room, and that has a lot of really great subtle choices and letting the audience come to certain conclusions and think about things 
kind of right before the characters do or giving the audience a sucker punch. Like I, I was, I was more impressed by that movie than, than anything I've seen in a really, really long time. And thought that that made a lot of great choices, uh, in writing and performance and shot selection, really, really across the boards in that one. I find it interesting you said purposefully ambiguous because I think that's a, a huge difference. A lot of times you see films and you feel like you're not being told things because the filmmakers don't know how to lay out that information or they've, sure. they haven't thought it through. But I never felt like when I got to the end of the film, I didn't feel like, oh, I feel shortchanged and unsatisfied because you didn't explain this because I felt like y you knew what was going on or you had the information. And I only got the information like I needed for the narrative to play out. And I didn't feel cheated or like you didn't know what was going on. And I think there's a right. big difference in films where you feel like they're just cheating the audience because they go, ah, you know, we don't want to go into that. Yeah, no, and, and, and that's, that, that's the ideal thing. I would say uh, we, did, we did almost no testing for this movie. The one thing for me that was really useful with testing, because I went into this and, and I knew there were going to be people wow, this is tedious and boring. And then the people are like, holy shit, this is really disgusting, and I don't want to watch it. And then there can be people who are really on board and maybe wish it was a little faster paced, and then the people who are completely on board and are so happy that it's paced the way it is. And, and so it broke down into those groups, and, and to this day those are the groups for this movie. And, uh, but we did, we, did a, we did really limited testing, just kind of a couple, a, a couple of tests. And really the, the value for me there was really one thing, and, and that was, is there something that people don't understand? And it, was, and it was really simple. There were a couple of scenes that were similarly lit and went back to back, and a couple of people thought they were the same location. I said, okay, let's put in some kind of establishing shots so that, to, to break these up so that no one confuses them for the same location. And that was kind of it. We looked at the movie, you know, as a whole over that, but this is, I mean, really, if this went through the testing process that's normal in Hollywood, this is a really different movie. And what I could do in probably 10 hours in, in a room with, with, you know, with one of, the, one of the great editors on this movie, either Greg Darier or Fred Raskin, uh, is I could turn this into a commercial, a much more commercial movie. Uh, first turn it into a 90-minute thing, get rid of tons of the conversation, put in a lot of music, Tighten up the shots because that's something you can do in post production, and uh, and there's that version. And what would happen is the people who love it would like it less. The people who think it's really good would like it less. The people who hate it might think it's mediocre. Like that's what would happen. And so what you're doing with a lot of that stuff when you over-explain things and really just try and make it as fast-moving as possible, and you know trim the fat, and as 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 people will say with all this sort of stuff. Is I think you are really you're really just trying to keep in those people who might think the movie is mediocre or terrible, and 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 I don't care about those people. Like those aren't that's not the audience. And you know this is a little bit the attitude that I come with as like you know as a metalhead who's played you know like death metal and all this sort of stuff. That just isn't for everybody. And you don't go out and write music like that and play music like that and think like oh well, but someday Carnegie Hall though actually that there was a death metal band called Opeth that played at Carnegie Hall, but I digress. The, the point being, I'm concerned with making the best version of what, I'm, what I've set out to make, 
and almost nothing that I've ever done in my life do I think will, will appeal to ninety, you know, ninety percent of the people out there. And I'm I'm comfortable with with the ambiguity, you know, with the ambiguity. I'm comfortable with not gratifying the audience completely, though I do want to give them something. And I, I think you can go over too much with not giving the audience any of what they want. And I think that that's not a great experience. But I think also giving the audience everything that they want is not a great experience. I want to talk to you about the structure a little bit because it is a slow burn. The thing that I really appreciated about that, and I know you said that you didn't think of it as a conventionally as a horror film, but a lot of horror films, I think what they fail at is they forget that if you care about the characters, you are much more engaged in the story and the tension feels much more palatable. So I felt the slow burn was this almost a distraction. Like you were almost without me realizing it, I was growing very attached to all these people. And so when it ramps up, suddenly I'm on the edge of my seat going, wait a minute, I like these guys. I don't want anything bad to happen to them. And now there's that danger that it really could. Absolutely. And that's that's probably a, a, a real core element of, of my aesthetic in all the things that I, that I do, which is spend the time to put the care into them and the, and the love into them. And I mean, this, this is something and it's come up in reviews now because a couple of Westerns have come out since, since Bone Tomahawk came out. But this, this is my, like, you know, my number one criticism for, for The Revenant, which, which I thought was, was terrible and the worst movie I've seen in many years. I just didn't care about that guy at all. And I think DiCaprio is a very good actor. I just don't think there was any material for him to work with. And there was no love in that character in terms of put in there by the, the people who wrote it um, and, and conceived of it. And uh, there's, there's no humor. And I don't really get a sense of a life there. And so with, with all of that stuff lacking... There's not really a reason for me to care. You're watching the person struggle, so maybe there would be admiration for going through all of these sorts of things. But in, in that movie in particular, there's very, very limited interaction with other people with that protagonist. And I couldn't tell you anything that person ever did other than that he has a little bit of an affection for Native Americans. Though this you're kind of told because when he's on screen with the one who he's closest with, uh, he's sort of nasty to him. So you just kind of spoon-fed that, well, but he's open-minded. And and then that's supposed to kind of carry you through this tedious movie of highly technical directing, and obviously didn't work for me. And this is the thing, like, with, with almost all the uh, all the stuff I like, you're going to spend time with the characters and maybe have some idea what their lives are like outside the events of the movie. You know, in the case of, a, you know, a great movie like Deliverance or... Wild Bunch, you're also getting a sense of the group developing and their dynamic, and not just the character arc, because maybe, uh, in my case, I write a lot of strong characters, so I'm not as concerned with giving them giant arcs, but just watching that person deal with these situations. But you can have the group arc in a certain way, as they do in Deliverance, uh, they do in Wild Bunch, as they do in Prince of the City. Uh, you know, these are these are all really good examples of just you know, watching watching that group come together and really caring a lot about a lot of them, but but also having a real sense of who these people are are outside of the immediate events of this movie, like what they might actually do on you know days where where you know terrible events aren't occurring. So it's a tough thing in terms of 
being a, being a writer and selling pieces in Hollywood because in general, uh, people are always looking at those character scenes and the scenes that don't advance the plot as the target scenes, like get rid of this stuff because it doesn't advance the plot. And, and my feeling is the scenes that don't advance the plot should be better than the ones that do or at least as good. And so a lot of those scenes are the most flavorful scenes. Certainly out of Bone Tomahawk, you can get rid of the scene where, you know, most of the scene where they're talking about corn chowder, scene where Chicory's talking about how to read a book in a bathtub. Sure. Can, can you read a book in the bath? I don't understand what you're asking. <clears throat> well, what I'm asking is, can you sit in a bathtub full of hot water and read a book? I never tried. Well, I heard about people doing it all the time, but every time I try it, I ruin the book. I splash water on it, I get, get it wet, turn into pages. I've even dropped some in. Why are you so determined to read literature while taking a bath? Well, it's just, it's just nothing feels better than sitting in that tub. But it just gets so dull looking at your toes the whole time. <clears throat> what? Why don't you get a music stand? Like the kind of orchestra fellow uses, or the choir master. Well, that's an idea. You put your book on that, right next to the tub. You keep a towel near so you can uh, you can dry your fingers, you know, before you turn the pages. First thing I'm gonna do when I get back is I'm gonna go get me one of those stands. <laughs> to me, it start like losing the heart of this piece and, and why I did it. And so everyone thought this stuff was gonna go by the wayside before we got to the finished product. And I just didn't actually have an interest in making the version of the movie where that stuff went by the wayside. It's like you said, I mean, you've, you've said exactly uh, what I hope to hear is when you get into the peril, you really care about these people. And I don't, I don't, you know, like watching the Revenant, I, when, the, when the bear attack happens, it's, you know, it's aggressive, but, but I don't, I, I certainly didn't care at all. But, you know, I know that that's a movie that, that a lot of people like, but I've also spoken to a lot of people who feel about it the way that I do, and it's just kind of this other example of, hmm, you know, wow, they, had, they didn't really put much much love into these, you know, these characters, and or, or much of a sense of anything outside this immediate ordeal. That's something that just informs my aesthetic. Like, if I don't care about them when I'm writing them, there's no way I could think that somebody else would care about them when they're sitting there watching them. Obviously, you have those characters on the page, and as Richard Jenkins said when, when I first met him, he said, you know, he said, actually, he said, these aren't characters on a page. These are effing people. And Kurt's early comment was, if you don't know what to do with these characters, the way they're written, you're a terrible actor and should retire. And there's a lot of information on the page because I'm, I'm a novelist and the, the, the prose is, is more detailed than the average. And so you take those characters and then you start bringing in performers like Richard Jenkins and, and Kurt Russell and, David Arquette and Patrick Wilson and Matthew Fox, and it you know it just it just makes them all that much richer. Well, Richard Jenkins' character in particular, I really loved because 
again, it, you do surprise us with him because you kind of dismiss him early on. You think like, oh, he's a bit of a doddering old guy and he'll probably be a, a pain to take along on the trip. And and you, it completely turns around as you go on the journey with him and you start to appreciate him a lot more. That's nice to hear. It's, it's interesting. I saw one review once who really kind of nailed it. And uh, because a lot of people will just, it's like, oh, he's the goose. He's, he's the older guy. And in general, that character singled out as, as most people's favorite. And he was the writer's darling when I, when I wrote him. And has the lion's share of the best lines. It's the official opinion of the backup deputy that his manner was suspicious. But he's a little bit more complicated. He's not, when people say he's a simpleton, uh, that's simplifying it. And I saw one review, one someplace, and said, this guy's a brilliant imbecile or a moronic genius. And I was like, that's, that's more the tone. Like, this guy knew stuff. He's also been through a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of character history with him that, that I talked about with Richard Jenkins. And, 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 and Richard Jenkins brought, brought a ton of stuff to that role. And uh, there's more to him than that. There's a wit there that, that is not the wit of an imbecile or, or, or the simpleton. But he's older, and his thoughts are less clear, and he's had some time, you know, kind of drifting, and he's damaged by his experiences in the Civil War. So all that stuff is there, and but there are the moments of clarity where he sees things uh, that other people don't, or says things that other people might be thinking but wouldn't say. So yeah, I, I really I think he's absolutely terrific in it, and uh, was was great to work with, and I'm I'm happy that he's received the kind of uh, notice that he has for it. He, he just does, he does a great job. And, and yeah, I think he's, sometimes I'll see people, they're like, oh, he's funny, he's the imbecile. I'm like, mm, he's, he's, he's more than that. If you listen to everything that he's saying and kind of add up the pieces of the puzzle that I give you uh, and that he gives you uh, gradually throughout the movie. Well, it reminded me a little bit, although they're very different films, but it reminded me a little bit of what Howard Hawks did in Rio Bravo, where he took the characters that had kind of been shunned in High Noon, the, I think it's the cripple, the drunk, and the young kid, and puts them in the key positions. And what I found with your film, without giving away anything from the end, but it seems like you take some of these characters that are not necessarily allowed kind of the top position in a Western, like this old guy, a woman doctor, someone who's crippled, and they really surprise you in terms of the roles they end up playing in this. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly, certainly I'm putting a lot of pieces on the board when I begin, and I, and I don't know necessarily where they're all going to go. But there are, yeah, and so some of that is just to go to some of the themes of the movie, which aren't really the things I like to articulate. I'd rather people discover it for themselves or come up with their own personal interpretation. That wasn't my intention because everyone has their own experience with, you know, with, with art and, and, uh, and, and it's valid, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, in that group dynamic. And certainly if it were four macho guys going out with tons of weaponry and, and absolutely ready for this, that's a little different than the, than the thing that I set in motion here. Rio Bravo. I, I remember enjoying that movie though. I've not seen it in, in probably 20 years. So I, I couldn't tell you any overlap it does or, or doesn't have. I'm a, I'm a weird, like, 35-millimeter revival house purist, so I tend to just see stuff when it comes around, and the last time I saw that was was about 20 years ago. I understand you shot this in 21 days. That seems like a pretty fast turnaround. Yeah, that's you know that was the situation we had. And by the end, 
we've gone through so many versions of this movie that almost happened. The casts were changing, though. Richard and uh, Kurt were, were pretty much always there. We had a lot of versions collapse. We originally were scouting New Mexico and that version, and then there was Utah version discussed, and we went out and scouted those locations. We're on our way with that one, and that collapsed. Then there was a Romania version discussed, and that collapsed. And then by the time we got to this one, we knew it was really our last shot with keeping all these actors around who'd been for this period of time. Uh, my manager, who's a producer of the movie, Dallas Sonier, basically wrote a check for half of this movie, and then the rest of the money came from assorted foreign sales. There actually wasn't a single company in this country that put money into this movie, and a few had some interest in it, but they wanted a creative control that they would never, like, I wasn't willing to do. I would just not make the movie if I had to turn over that much authority to somebody, and that was how I got going. But the, you know, it's it's one of these things where it led to me having uh, an amount of control that most first-time directors do not have. Uh, and it also led to me shooting the movie in probably half of the amount of time we, you know, we, we really would have wanted. So there's a lot of stuff in there where people, you know, they're nailing it out of the gates. We're just moving on. We're not trying to, you know, okay, well, let this is this is really good. Let's have fun and play around with it. That, that didn't happen. You know, like the scene where Chickory's talking about reading a book in a bathtub, pretty sure you're looking at the first take. And I know we did two two takes of that, and that was it. And so there's a lot of stuff like that where when I knew I had something that was good or very good, we'd move on and, you know, and, and need to do it quickly. And, and certainly, I, you know, I made some mistakes, but a, a lot, you know, a lot more right decisions in my thinking in that it all came together. And considering the speed, I think it's something to be able to say that, you made a movie that's this ambitious as your first feature and you're walking away 80% happy with it, which is what, which is about how happy I am with the piece. And how much did it end up costing? Uh, it was $1.8 million. So it was it's amazing. It was, yeah. It was not, <laughs> not, not a lot of money, a lot of scrambling. And in terms of a lot of the key crew positions, which is the, the production designer, Freddie Woff and Chantal Felsen, who is doing uh, costumes, a lot of these people were excited by this material itself. So there was that, and in the way that we got this really good cast that probably misleads people in, in terms of what they think the budget might have been, uh, we also had a lot of people who were very excited about this material and busting their ass. I mean, you know, costume uh, costumes were being done uh, literally in the parking lot of the hotel that I was staying in and Van Nuys, California, like that kind of stuff was going on because that's all, that's all that we could do. The major location scout for the movie was me. And I went out day and day and day to try and find what I wanted. And still probably the element I'm least satisfied with the movie. I had a very specific geographical progression from scene to scene. And it's really clear in the script and it isn't in the movie. We've got some of those things, but a lot of the stuff I wanted didn't exist in the, the zone for Los Angeles, and if we were shooting outside the zone, then we have all of these financial penalties that would have resulted in us losing days. So it's it's one of these things. Like it's very directly connected to the money in terms of that one element being the one that I'm, I'm certainly least least happy with. I think the production design of the locations is really good, astonishing considering the budget, but we just couldn't physically get to all of the right exterior locations I, I'd, I'd originally envisioned. 
So you had a background in cinematography. What were you going after in terms of how you wanted the film to look? The second editor on the movie, Greg Daurier, put it put it really well and succinctly when he said that my style is an anti-style. And um, I worked as a cinematographer on, on low-budget things and the first time directors and saw people, you know, really, really trying to, you know, go out there and do all the showy stuff. And, and things that I think are really kind of calling attention to the director and the camera and in, in for me are actually distracting you from the content of the movie. So this sort of goes along with my philosophy of why, why there's so little music in the movie. I, I really wanted to get on the set and capture those performances. And I wanted a lot of the, a lot of the cuts to not be very noticeable. And there's a very, there's an idea that I had that I would say, again, sort of in the 75, 80% zone, I was able to, to carry off, which is motivating most of the edits with the looks of characters. So you'll see a scene like when Bruder is setting the bells around the camp. That's a scene that's, that's uh, perfectly done in, in this style, where uh, pretty much every time you're cutting, it's because... Uh, Chicory, who's the protagonist of that scene, I have him set as the anchor, he's looking. And so all of the edits are when he's looking. It's not so much that I was sitting in the editing room uh, with the editors and I'm like, well, we want to see this now. Ah, uh, let's just show this for a little while. It's motivated by what the actors are doing. And it, it's weird. Like, I've never heard anyone articulate this in this way. I'm so, Other people must have done this, um, maybe not so uh, strictly. But this this was the, the idea. It was, we had a ton of movie to get in a small time. Really pick your person who's the focus of the scene. And usually it was pretty clear, uh, with the exception of some of the action beats uh, from the script. And then have that person, uh, be it Arthur stumbling along and he pauses and he looks down at something and then you see what he's looking at. Uh, and then occasionally breaking from all that intimate um, but but pretty steady handheld work uh, to go to some wider vistas to give you a little bit of this um, to give you a little bit of perspective and to give you a, a little bit of uh, breathing room from all of that close stuff. So it's it's something where really stylistically I was going for a style that wouldn't be noticed. Um, I think in a way that makes it more noticed. Uh, the the my. Um, my preference for, for medium shots over close-ups is also something that, that's pretty different. I think that actors have a, a couple of great emotive tools. Well, one, of those things, one of those is obviously their face, in particular their eyes. But hands, I think, are really important. And, and if you watch that, you know, there's, there's a monologue that, about a flea circus in there. That's, there's a lot of great stuff going on um, with that performer's hands. And that's kind of all throughout this movie. I can point to little spots where... I think a good a, a good chunk of the performance uh, you're seeing with their hands, and so if you get really used to a lot of close-ups, and then all of a sudden you're cutting to close-ups of hands or cutting to wider shots, you feel it. Uh, and it, and additionally, I wanted to have this thing where it felt like a realistic proximity, like you're not usually looking at somebody's face from four inches away unless you're intimate with that person. So again, it's this it was this style of this natural kind of camera distance as opposed to jammed up in people's faces and looking at their pores, seeing their hands when they're gesturing when they speak, because when you speak to somebody and they gesture, you see their hands. 
So it was really trying to be this style where it wouldn't be noticed. But I think because a lot of these choices are, are you know, in, in some ways have more to do with movies that are happening in the 50s and the 70s than now, it winds up seeming, you know, stylized in this way. And the not having music, to me, is I'm not putting something that I think is artificial in a movie, but to other people, this is a, a, a very strong style choice, you know, that makes it all the more starker, you know, like, and, and so that's, that was the basic approach, but the the reference points for me were, you know, my favorite director, Sidney Lumet, and this is a guy whose style fluctuates depending on the movie. Sometimes his stuff is pretty stylized and sometimes not at all, but I feel it's, he was, his material is always about what the performers are doing on the set and the, and the, and the script and capturing it in an effective way. But, you know, guys like Juan Carway or, or uh, Larry Clark, John Cassavetes, Takashi Kitano, like a lot of these people who have a little more like relaxed, natural thing as opposed to lots of slow motion and super tight close-ups and all that sort of stuff. Well, also for your film, it seems like the wider shots allow the dynamic of the group and also their relation to the environment, which seems yes. important. Yeah, the, the environment, that's, those were, those were, I kind of set up the, uh, apart the different kinds of shots, and I'd labeled those as like, you know, these are the paintings that were that were putting there, where you really get a sense of that the environment that they're in, where everyone is, um, because that other stuff is mostly closer in. But yeah, seeing these people kind of small in the landscape gives you a little bit of sense of the, the just the, the the spaces that were out there and how you know there's, there are four of them, how like lonely this this small group is moving across this unknown frontier. And how was it working with Kurt Russell? Because he seems like such an underappreciated actor to me. I, he, he should have like armfuls of awards, I think, but he doesn't. We had some, we had some disagreements over the piece. For the most part, it was, it was good working with him. He, more than some of the other actors who, a lot of them have experience with shooting TV and it was moving at that speed. He, he was, unhappy with that and you know let me know but also championed the piece and came on board i mean i his, his work in this thing I, I think is terrific certainly i would hold up his his final scenes in this movie as, as some of the best stuff i've ever seen him do we saw we were like-minded in a lot of stuff but not in other scenes and we we we, we had our disagreements and some of those disagreements like in, in particular with his final scene in the movie led to some of the best work the guy has a has a, a great voice and really fits into that sort of world. You had no cause. Those men were scouts for a raiding party. Or thieves. You don't know that. And I wanted to get information from them in any case. They wouldn't have told you the correct year, much less anything else. I know how to interrogate a man. He's got a system. We need to pack up and make a cold camp somewhere else, someplace defensible. If you want to question my morals, do it later. There aren't any to question. And I, I, I think his work in this is terrific. It's, it's interesting because I see, you know, where people talk about him and say, oh, it's, you know, it's the Kurt Russell role or, you know, he's doing what he does. And this, to me, is subtler work and obviously directed to my taste. And then even more so when I'm in the editing room and picking all the moments. And my taste is for subtlety with performance. I would rather have 
95% of the, the stuff a little bit under than, you know, than even have like 10% of it over. Because I think most, not, most acting that I dislike is overacting, but keeping it real and keeping it subtle I, I, is, is, is more to my taste. And he does a lot of, he does a lot of really good stuff here. So I'm, I, it wasn't always easy working with him. Uh, a lot of the times it was enjoyable. But in the end, I think I think this is this is you know one of my favorite performances of him. I think he's great in Dark Blue, and I really like him in uh, Death Proof as well. But I will I'll there are a handful of scenes in this movie I'll throw against any scenes uh, of his in in anything else. Again, that makes sense because I'm directing him and then choosing all my favorite moments in the editing room with the editors. So it is to my taste, but I, I think he's particularly good in this. And without giving anything away, I did want to ask you about how you approach using violence in a film, because I think a lot of times filmmakers don't know how to use violence in an effective manner. So kind of what was your uh, approach? You had mentioned about you wanting to catch people off guard or to shock them. So how did you kind of tackle it? There's violence in this movie, and then there's extreme graphic violence. So I'll go to the extreme graphic violence and assume that that's, that's what you're more interested in, in hearing about. My, my approach was handled it exactly the same way I'm going to handle the guy talking about porn chowder, and it's just show it real. You see any activity in that? And, and that's something that a lot of people have commented on and, and really understood just how not Hollywood those are in presentation. Like, I'm not going in for a lot of close-ups. There's not a lot of slow motion. There's no music going on during that awful stuff. And it just happens in front of you. This is the way, like, when you see awful crap that it, that it is. I, was, I had a relative in the emergency room about two weeks ago, and I was stuck there uh, with her for 25 hours. And I saw, you know, a lot of awful stuff. And there, but I didn't go close up on it. There was no scary music playing. It was just there. So that was my approach. Don't treat this stuff any differently than someone talking about corn chowder or how to read a book in a bathtub. Just show it. And the focus for the the most violent scene uh, that that people talk about are, are the reactions of of the people who were there. If you if you actually broke down that scene and what you're looking at most of the time, it is that the the main character who you, you who you've been with for a ton of the movie reacting to it rather than just watching all of the the violence happen and the violence that's happening, you're all you're seeing all of that stuff from the perspective of that person and from the distance of that person. Whereas, like I think there's one one exception where technically we just couldn't get it that way, but that's the idea. It's still a movie about these characters and what they're experiencing and the audience seeing uh, these things, be they humorous or sad or terrifying, uh, through the eyes of the character and not losing the focus. So I think, I think that's one of the reasons because when, when people say, you know, it does this giant genre jump and this major, this hard turn left, uh, but it still feels cohesive, it's because it doesn't actually change. Like what's happening on screen changes? in terms of the content of what we were shooting, but it's still about these same characters that it was about before, and I, and I don't lose sight of that to go into some super 
tight close-ups or or all of, like CG, you know, all this like computer generated gore, all, all that stuff is done practically on set, and it was just it's tangible in in that way, and that was my hope, and I, I enjoy the Lucio Fulci and Dario Argento stuff. Like I, I grew up on, you know, that Italian gore stuff and that stuff is terrific, but it's different and you don't really care about the people in quite the same way. Uh, and it's very much about cool, you know, like cool atmosphere and good music and, uh, gore set pieces. It, you know, l- less so than it is about a bunch of characters trying to do something and you're watching them weather this journey and, and you really want them to survive. Like, you know, in a lot of horror movies, like you, you, you like you're looking forward to the violence and, and, and if Bone Tomahawk is working for you in the right way, uh, you should be dreading, uh, what's coming up rather than like, I hope I see the horrible things happen to all the people I care about. It's a hard film to describe sometimes because it doesn't meet conventional expectations, which is the very good thing about it. But I think... Somebody asked me, like, well, what kind of a horror film is it? And I said, well, maybe the choice of words I should have used is it's horrific at times as opposed to a horror film. That's And, and that's that's how I see it. Again, like, people call it a horror western, fine. Like, people call it a, a horror movie, fine. I <laughs> A good comparison is the band Motorhead. Uh, this is a band I enjoy. I'm a metalhead. I, I always kind of thought of them in a metal context. Uh, punks really like this band. They think of them in a punk context. You talk to Motorhead uh, or, or Lemmy, uh, you know, RIP, he would say they're a rock band. And so, uh, but the, that the metalheads say that they're metal and that the punks say that they're punk, that just means it's, it's, it's delivering in different areas and maybe isn't exactly like something you've seen before, uh, which, which was the case with that band when they arrived and what they're doing with you know, the, the, the tempos they're playing at and the, the rolling double bass and all that sort of stuff. So with, with Bone Tomahawk, yeah, I think a brutal Western or horrific Western or all that sort of stuff, but if someone says it's a horror Western, that's fine, and if someone says it's a horror movie, that's fine. I just, you know, when I think of movies that, that, that are sort of similar, were sort of similar experiences for me in some ways, like Deliverance is one that comes to mind. Uh, I've, I've never really described that as a horror movie. But certainly you watch some stuff in that movie that is horrifying and traumatizing, and you're going on a journey with this group of guys and that, that has an interesting dynamic. And so it's just that. And however people describe it, and the fact that people have a hard time describing it, to me, is somewhat satisfying in that it means I've done something a little bit different. Well, I think you have. And uh, I understand you have a lot of unproduced screenplays, and I hope that having <laughs> this film out there will start making some people look at those, because I would love to see something else from you soon. Yeah, well, th- thank you. I, uh, I am probably about 20-something pages away from the end of uh, a script that I w- will should either be my second or third movie as a director while we're taking around a movie that will either be a script that will either be my second or third movie as a director. We'll see which one lands first. And, and I have some, and I have some other stuff moving forward. It's, it's tough because this movie as an indie is a day and day release. Like we've made our money back many, many, many times over. It's doing really, really well. Uh, the, the critical response was, was terrific. It was like, you know, number one indie on iTunes last week. And, and I think number, number five or six movie there, and so, it's, and this is four months after the release, 
So it's doing really, really well. But if you're in Hollywood and gearing up for 40 or 50 or $60 million movies, uh, you know, I, I don't know what conclusions you draw from this. Like this movie is generating a lot of conversation and is doing very well in the space that it's in. Uh, but if, if as the studios move more and more towards just making gigantic movies, I don't know that this gives them that much comfort, you know? And so that, that's the thing. Like I, I come at this, which is, you know, with, with, the hope that a lot of my other stuff goes and I, I, obviously I keep pushing stuff forward. Uh, even in the years since, you know, making bone Tomahawk, I've, you know, optioned a bunch of others. So I'm, I'm, I'm at 24 and probably by the end of uh, next month, I'll probably be up to 27 different pieces. And uh, I, I would really like to see some of them made. I just don't know what, uh, what lessons will be learned uh, if people are like, we want to make a $100 million movie, and know that'll definitely make 150 or $200 million. Uh, I don't know what people will, will conclude from this, from a really successful, critically acclaimed, but certainly divisive in some circles, indie. So I, I hope to get stuff out there. I hope, uh, I hope other pieces of mine are made by other people, but that's not stuff I'm counting on. I'm counting on just making my own and getting the talent on board and continuing to make my own. Well, and keep that creative control because it does do something Absolutely. different. And I know that as you get more money to make a film, which can make certain things easier, it means that there's more people looking over your shoulder saying, eh, maybe you shouldn't do that. Cause... <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've, already, I've already gotten a couple of offers, and it's not. I'm not interested in something where I might put in a year of my life or a year and a half or two years. And then some some dude is just going to say this has got to change because no no committee is ever letting Bone Tomahawk through like no like the, the the amount of the amount of material that could be removed to make a faster pace the amount of music that could be added tightening up all these shots like it's it, it doesn't get through and I understand that those other movies like again those other movies will 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 it, it done that way will bring back would would interest some of those people who hated the movie and get them to think it's mediocre. But, you know, that, that's not why I do this. Like, I'm not out there to make the movies that everybody else is making or write the books that everybody else is writing. Like, I have a different thing that I want to do, and you know, that's what I want to get out there. So I'm, I'm comfortable. If I'm stuck in a zone of making movies that are two, three, four million dollars, but I maintain control, I'll continue to conceive movies that are in that budget range. That's what I'm writing now, and that's the one I'm taking around now. If I get to a point where I can make a movie for, for, for a bigger budget, I'll do it if I, if I maintain the same level of control. And if I don't, I won't. It's just too much time to have you know, some dude say, I thought, thought this scene was boring. I think you should cut it out. Mm -hmm. Like, well, I think you should, you know, <laughs> no. <laughs> That's the, that's the way that's the way that works. Yeah. Well, good you, to hear. I'm trying, glad trying to hear to that. Trying to please everybody is a, is a really bad way. Yes. Like I start with I start with making something that I like, and, and then I figure people who have like minded taste. Let's see if those people like it, and then you know, and then kind of go from there. I want people to like what I do, but I'm not making creative choices so that more people like what I do. That's the difference. Well, also, then at least you sit, make one person happy if you make the film you want, at least. Correct. <laughs> Correct. If Bo, if Bo Tomahawk was a disaster, 
and came out and was panned and did financially terribly and, and, and was the only movie I ever directed, I could say, well, I put in all that time and made something that I like. Maybe someday it'll be discovered. Uh, maybe it won't be, but that's, that's, that's the thing. That's why, that's why I've had some difficulties in Hollywood when, they, when development starts pushing pieces that I wrote into pieces that I wouldn't write or wouldn't even want to see. Well, it gets easy for me to walk away because I can generate more. You know, it's like, well, no, the, the, we, this idea will cross the line of, of this piece is starting to become bad or losing the core of it. So, you know, that, that's, that's what I do. And I just can keep generating material. Uh, but yeah, it's, it'll be, it'll be crazy. Like yeah, probably in a month, it's going to be 27 pieces in that system. So the only one that got made was, was the one I made. And then one got made in, in, uh, in Belgium by, uh, you know, by a French director with Englishmen and Australians pretending to be American. Uh, like, to, to have that many pieces out in the system, I, I wonder, I don't know, I actually don't know enough about the industry to know how often something like that happens, that amount of material. But, you know, keep producing, and now at this point I, I should have, I should be able to get the resources to make movies at around this scale, and, and I hope a little bit bigger. Well, I hope so, and... Thank you very much for making time, and I'm sure. really looking forward to showing this film to a, to an audience here in San Diego. Cool. I, I hope they enjoy it, and, uh, and, and thanks again for your interest. Thanks for listening to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'll have two special podcasts coming up, one on The Witch and another on the Oscar-nominated documentary, The Look of Silence. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or find new episodes at kpbs.org slash junkiepodcast. So until our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.